We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Welcome back to another episode of Banter. I'm Max Frost, and here with me today is my ever-loyal host, Matt Weinset. I'm just like a German Shepherd that way. Yes, he is. <laughs> Our guest today is Colin Dewick. Uh, he's a visiting scholar here at AEI, as well as a professor at George Mason. He has a PhD from Princeton and was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. Um, he's also the author of three books on American foreign policy and has a new one coming out this year called Age of Iron on Conservative Nationalism. If you can't tell from Max's read, he is an incredibly impressive, smart, engaging person, and we had a great talk with him about the future of Republican foreign policy, the Trump doctrine, if there is one, and much else, and we really hope you enjoy it. We did. So without further ado, here's Colin. Hi, Colin. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We're recording this right after an event here at AEI that you led called Resurgent American Nationalism, Conservatism, Foreign Policy, and Beyond. Um, as you mentioned, this is a major part of your research, so can you tell us a bit about this? What do you mean by American nationalism? Sure. I think historically, American nationalism has meant more than one thing. It has meant, for example, the founders believed in preserving American national sovereignty. They took that for granted. And it wasn't really until the 20th century, well into the 20th century, that you had presidents like Woodrow Wilson who were willing to you know, make global binding commitments through multilateral institutions, right? So in a way, he sort of departed from that tradition. One way of thinking about the Trump phenomenon is that Trump is the first president since, since the interwar period, since the 30s, who has said, in a way, he wants to return to that early model of ad hoc coalitions, uh, no binding permanent multilateral commitments. I mean, he hasn't actually dismantled all of America's institutional you know, uh, affiliations overseas, but he clearly approaches things from a from a unilateral or bilateral approach, which in a way is the original American tradition, actually. So why is it resurgent today? You, you mentioned, I guess it's the first time since the 30s. Is the Trump phenomenon, is his America first nationalist philosophy, is that a new thing or is it just kind of a reiteration of something that America's already seen before? I think door number two, I think it's, I, I don't think it's entirely new. I think it's sort of so old that it's new. Uh, the why, I think to answer that, you have to look at the people that voted for him early on in 2016. I think it was frustration with multilateral free trade agreements, frustration with military interventions overseas in the greater Middle East, Muslim world, frustrations with uh, immigration patterns that also seem tied into this globalist uh, idea. And, and he was able to tap into that and bundle it with an anti-establishment demeanor and message that really resonated and, and to a lot of people's surprise, captured the White House. So um, in a way, it's very traditional. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually not all that new. So well, one, one thing that kind of strikes me, as you just said a second ago, is this kind of ad hoc alliance making unilateral, bilateral. And that obviously is something that sounds so 
to a lot of people in D.C., it's kind of toxic. You know, people hate this idea of pulling out of multilateral agreements, multilateral organizations. Why is it like that? Why is there so much? I mean, when you put it like that, it doesn't sound so bad. Yeah. Um, yet why is there so much, you know, antipathy towards this? Well, I think there are good reasons and bad reasons. I mean, the good reasons, you know, there, there, are, there are actually, we do gain by having allies. I, I do believe that. So NATO, Japan, South Korea, you know, our core allies and partners overseas, this makes us stronger, not weaker. I really do believe that's true. And I don't, I don't, I'm still not convinced that Donald Trump fully gets that. I think he tends to see allies as free riders, and he always has. He thinks they free ride off of us economically and militarily. So that's, that's a legitimate concern that a lot of people in the Beltway have, which is, hey, don't you understand that these allies are worth something? The, the less legitimate concern is what I would call sort of a liberal Brezhnev doctrine, which is to say if any, if any liberal administration has ever signed a single treaty agreement, it must not be rescinded or dismantled. So whether it's, you know, you look at Obama, right? So the Paris Accord on Climate Change, uh, Iran, uh, Nuclear Arms Control Agreement, um, you know, arms control with Russia, you just go down the list. There's, it seems to be almost a given that all, every single thing that Obama signed must be sacrosanct and that if any of it is, is subject to revision, that this is, you know, a withering assault on the rules-based liberal world order, whatever that means. So that's where it gets, I think, a little bit partisan, a little bit hysterical, a little bit over the top. I think it's perfectly reasonable for a new administration to come in and say, case by case, we like this agreement, we don't like that one. I mean, I, that's, that's, that's quite reasonable to me. Yeah, but it's not just conservatives or it's not just liberals that are taking issue with Trump's tearing up different documents or, you know, har- like not harassing, but kind of you know, harassing, for lack of a better word, NATO allies demanding they pay more and things like that. A lot of conservatives are worried about it, too. Yeah. Maybe the more, you know, quote-unquote beltway, never Trump conservatives. Isn't there something to be said that these, when we sign these agreements with other countries, they rely on the U.S. to kind of keep their long-term word? And even if not every agreement's great, if we just start, if we get into a habit of where one administ- administration comes in and, you know, leaves or tries to alter the deals that the previous ones made... It'll be much harder to make future deals with countries because they might, they'll see them as much more transitory. Well, it depends on the agreement. I mean, I would say I, I buy that argument when it comes to something like NATO. I mean, I do think it's destabilizing to have any president regularly questioning whether NATO is even valid anymore. Actually, for the most part, Trump Trump is often quite supportive of NATO, but then he combines it with these unconventional tweets or off-the-cuff comments, which is what gets people's attention. Now, on the other hand, with something like uh, the Paris Accord, I mean, I don't, I don't see why. It, this, is, this isn't something that goes back a century and is a core element of U.S. foreign policy. It was a fairly recent development. It was controversial at the time. Republicans made it clear. Most of us didn't like it. So I, I think it's fair game for a new administration to say, you know, we're, we're actually going to leave. And in fact, I would give Trump credit for, in some cases, being willing to do things that other presidents or administrations haven't been willing to do and say, you know, why don't we move uh, the embassy to Jerusalem? I mean, these kinds of things. I mean, wh- why, why do we sort of uh, have this informal understanding that we can't actually change anything? That's one of the things that Trump's done, as strange as he is, his willingness to just ask questions, unconventional questions in an unconventional way, I, I think is actually perfectly reasonable. It's not to say he has the answers. He is rude to our allies. There's no denying it. I mean, he's obnoxious. Uh, people don't like it. But is the core question so invalid? I mean, why can't the Germans spend more on their own defense? That's a pretty tough question. I don't think the Germans have a good answer to that right now. I mean, anybody, I mean, Robert Gates would probably say the same thing. Yeah, well, one of the things that struck me was after 
what was the treaty? The arms treaty with Russia. Mm. Um, oh, I, uh, INF. INF, yeah. yeah. Um, which, and it was almost like it was completely panned, the fact that we would withdraw from this treaty, yet at the same time, Russia was completely violent. I mean, yeah. they, put, they had put their weapons in Kaliningrad and yep. completely in violation of it, and just kind of this expectation that you'd stay around with it out of inertia almost. Um, well, that's a good example of where, and, and I actually think it's healthy to have different Republicans or conservatives in D.C. debating one another. We were just talking about this earlier, that uh, let's have the conversation. But uh, that's a case where even some never-Trump conservatives who are really expert on this have said, you know what, fair enough. The Russians aren't keeping the treaty. Why should we be bound by a treaty that, that they feel free to cheat on? So uh, some leading voices have said, really, it was an achievement at the time in the 80s. Undoubtedly, it was a great achievement for Reagan. It was worth keeping for a while. The Russians have regularly cheated. Why should we be bound by it? That's that's not an unreasonable concern. I'm sympathetic to all these points, especially about, you know, allies should pay more. But just to play devil's advocate a little bit, isn't one of the arguments that we don't really want Europe to spend a lot of money on defense that historically has, like, been bad for the, bad for world peace? And it seems kind of funny now to worry that Germany is not spending enough on defense when historically, whenever Germany spends on defense, very bad things have happened. Right. So if we, if the choice was between the current Germany or the other extreme, oh uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to try to. <laughs> okay, I don't want to invoke the, the third rack or anything. But yeah, but the, uh, like, <laughs> there, it's kind of a feature, not a bug of NATO, right? That Europe has outsourced their security to us. We don't really necessarily want them to have large standing armies in Europe anymore. To to a point, yes. You you want to have a Europe from the American point of view. You want to have a Europe that I think is bound to the U.S. strategically, that is not cut loose and then tempted to cut deals with the Russians or, you know, get involved in its own internal squabbles in really dysfunctional ways. Uh, but, it, you know, where we're at now, we're, we're kind of on the other end of the spectrum. I mean, we're at a point where the Germans promise 2%, 2% they can't even, they really, they're stuck at one or a little bit higher. The, the culture in Germany is so demilitarized that they, they, they actually don't seem to want to grasp the reality of it. There are other countries where it's easier. The French, for example, have really been more realistic. I was talking to a diplomat from France who said, we really never counted on you guys in the first place. <laughs> so they, you know, the, the, the De Gaulle tradition yeah. meant that they've always maintained more of a sense of their own independence and a, an ability to defend themselves. So oddly enough, the French seem to be a little bit better prepared, not just physically, but mentally for the Trump era. Um, so to get back to kind of what you're talking about today um, at this event, um, resurgent American nationalism. You know, nor everything we've been reading for the past couple of years, you could just switch that out and say populism. You know, everyone's talking about populism, populism, mm. populism. Uh, are nationalism and populism, how much do they overlap? Are they more or less the same thing? Can we use those words interchangeably or not so much? They do overlap, but they're not exactly the same thing. So I would define populism as the argument that um, ultimately the people should rule as opposed to, say, some technocratic, unelected elite, right? Now, populism in different countries takes different forms, just like nationalism can take different forms. So I would say, you know, Russian populism, or Russian nationalism looks different from the American version. Uh, Venezuelan populism or Venezuelan nationalism looks different from the American version. I think historically in the United States, populist movements have often been messy. They've sometimes had leaders that are very colorful or even outrageous, but they do tend to refresh the American party system. And usually one of the two political parties ultimately, after the messiness, incorporates some of the core concerns and and voters, and, and, and it actually helps... Um, Improve, improve the debate. Um, you think about William Jennings Bryan in 1896, the classic populist, right? He didn't win the presidency. Maybe he shouldn't have won the presidency, but he represented a valid point of view, which was Western agrarian, you know, farmers. 
who said, we feel underrepresented. And eventually the Democrats incorporated that constituency and, and ultimately you got FDR. So what, one of the surprising things about Trump was he was a, in a way a kind of a populist protest leader who won the whole thing. I mean, a lot of people thought he was going to be stuck as a kind of third party or at least he, he wasn't going to win you know, the presidency. But to have somebody come out of nowhere and win, take the nomination of a major party and win the presidency on the first try, that's a populist. That is some kind of realignment. I don't want to overuse the word, but something has shifted whereby the Republican Party has become more populist because of Trump. But also he is in a way an effect as much as a, as much as a cause. Yeah, and he has seemed to assimilate some of the populist motivations into the Republican orthodoxy, whether about immigration or trade. For a while, during the Bush years, it seemed like everything was more liberal of trade, more liberal immigration policies. Trump seems to be a correction on that. But in terms of foreign policy, is there a coherent populist foreign policy challenge that you see the Republican Party or the Trump White House trying to acclimate itself towards? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what he campaigned on was a very a withering critique of past administrations of both parties, uh, arguing that military interventions hadn't worked, uh, implying that the U.S. should be less interventionist, but at the same time be very bloody-minded in, in relation to terrorists and yeah. strong defense. Now, in reality, the Trump administration, of course, is a mix of Trump's own incoming uh, impulses and then specific policies that had to be worked out with personnel who, in many cases, are more traditionally Republican. So I think it's been kind of a hybrid of of, of Trump's instincts, which are more populist and nationalist on foreign policy. And then some, some elements are more traditionally Republican. Depends case by case. But, you know, if you think back, NATO, NATO is obsolete, right? Trump said that. He really said that, right? Nobody forgets that. However, NATO continues. <laughs> so the Trump administration foreign policy is not that NATO is obsolete. It's a, it, it is a, there's more continuity than one might have thought from the election. A similar, on a similar note, is there such thing as a true conservative foreign policy? And, you know, conservatives love to say, well, Trump's not really a conservative. Yeah. Is, you know, I, I, mean, I guess that's a separate question. But, yeah, is there, is there a conservative foreign policy? Is that a real thing? And is Trump screwing it up? Or is it not really a real thing? And people are saying this kind of in hindsight. I mean, I've written on this a lot. I, I think even in the United, even if you narrow it down to just one country, the United States, what it means to have a conservative foreign policy can mean more than one thing. So, for example, in the Bush era, George W. Bush, it was redefined to mean we're going to respond to 9-11 um, by invading Iraq, trying to democratize Iraq. And I think this was very well intentioned. I think it was a, an honorable intention. Um, but after a few years, there was increased frustration over this. It is simply not the case that that's the only conservative American foreign policy for all time. I mean, if you go back, Reagan and Bush Sr. pursued slightly different policies. Nixon, Eisenhower, I mean, however you want to define different leaders as conservative, right? There is, there is, in fact, more than one conservative foreign policy tradition in the United States, and people are going to have to get their head around that. Trump himself is not a conservative. He's not particularly ideological at all. But I do think he, he represented a clear repudiation of the most recent version mm -hmm. in the Beltway, and that's what's confused people is they don't know what to make of it, right? Or how far back are we going? Are we going back to, you know, the 70s or the 20s or the 19, 1820s? I mean, what are we talking about? Um, but he clearly represented a repudiation of George W. Bush. Uh, that was very clear. But how far back beyond that, that was less clear. Yeah, both Max and I grew up or came of age, I guess, our political forming, uh, we were formed in the post 9-11 age. And so when we, when I grew up and was forming my own political identity, the traditional Republican foreign policy that 
even now I hear about just on Twitter and, and whatnot is that's not the only source of my information, but you know what I mean, <laughs> is just neoconservatism. Going back Reagan and George H.W. Bush to a lesser extent, definitely George W. Bush, everybody says they're the neocons, that's the Republican foreign policy, and Trump is a total break from that. Mm. But, I mean, growing up, neoconservatism conservatism was Republican foreign policy, and that was what we were told was the conservative thought here. Now Trump seems to say, and you hear this with the Rand Paul as well, that no, actually the 1920s more isolationist was, is the true conservative foreign policy. Mm. Can those both be right? Can we have two different conservative foreign policies? Well, you can't do that. No, you can't have both the 1920s foreign policy and a 1980s foreign but, policy. But can, like, can conservatives of different stripes both do they are both are they both somewhat right to say both of these represent conservative visions of foreign policy? Actually, yes, I do think so. I think there is, in in fact, more than one way of defining it, and then people can debate what they think is the best route. I mean, I, I wouldn't recommend we dismantle all our alliances, which is what the twenties route would take. But that you know that's a tradition. Um, I do think it's worth remembering that even Reagan. I mean, if if people say Reagan was a neoconservative, you know, what do we mean by neoconservative? Gene, I'm the Gene Kirkpatrick Fellow at here at AI. Yeah. Gene Kirkpatrick argued against destabilizing allies on human rights issues. That was her argument, right? Because she, she was afraid that radical anti-American dictators could take hold, and, and, and as they did in places like Nicaragua and Iran. That was her neoconservative argument. Over the years, the word then transformed itself to mean the opposite, which is we need to actually, we need to push our allies to transform themselves. So this, even that word has meant more than one thing. Yeah, it seems like it's become a bit of a straw man almost now. Where I, my, one of my questions here is, is neocon even a useful label anymore? Because now it just seems like, I, th I think Jonah here has written before that it's uh, basically means nothing besides a suspiciously Hebraic warhawk. Now, too, when you read any kind of op-ed about Venezuela, and it always says Trump yeah. is getting the neocons back together. Yeah, and it, you know. yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I think I think that word has probably outlived its usefulness. It's more it's more useful now to talk about the actual policy. What are we talking about? I mean, are we trying to promote regime change in Venezuela or not? Right. I mean, Trump. According to that definition, you could say Trump's a neocon. If if the definition of neocon is you're promoting regime change in Venezuela, then apparently Donald Trump's a neocon. So, how far back does regime change play into the conservative foreign policy, um, and all of its shifting forms? Um, like you said, that's something we kind of grew up with. Was this idea? Yeah. Is that was that created by you know this Reagan Kirkpatrick period or is it before then or oh no it wasn't the CIA, the CIA stuff and the Cold War but yeah I think I think the concept of regime change goes back to the American founding I mean just in the sense of you hope that popular government will spread it's on the one dollar bill right a new order for the ages the founders didn't think they had the ability to intervene all over the place and as the U S became more powerful it had that ability but. Regime change, I think, is, is really as American as apple pie. Now, sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we get it right. There have been some great successes. Germany and Japan were great successes. In recent years, we're more struck by the frustrations. It's not, it's not uh, limited to conservatives. I think every single U.S. president since, I would you know, for generations has ended up engaging in some attempt at regime change. Um, but, you know, it became so dramatically controversial under... W. Bush in particular, that it became the center for debate. Yeah. 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 So you've advised different Republican politicians before on foreign policy. Yeah. When you tell them, I feel like we've done a pretty good job describing foreign policy in the past, but what is the normative approach or what should yeah. a conservative or Republican foreign policy look like going forward? Well, so my argument's always been um, that the U.S. does benefit by leading, that this means that we need, for example, a strong Navy to protect 
open trade, open waterways, alliances that in the end are assets. I mean, without those allies, we're going to be in a much lonelier, more hostile world. Mm -hmm. I don't think it means we have to go off half-cocked and intervene in every single case or meddle in every single case. I would be careful about, you know, promiscuous interventions or trying to change every single domestic arrangement. But strong military alliances, fundamentally leaning forward, maintaining this forward presence, uh, robust deterrence, right? I mean, draw red lines and then enforce them or else don't draw them in the first place. Uh, so those are those are sort of core principles that, that I think, in the end, in practical terms, I actually think most conservative voters, uh, not to mention members of Congress, can agree on that if they, if they spend less time arguing about isms. <laughs> well, I guess this may be kind of a tough question to answer. But, you know, I feel like everything we kind of hear nowadays is, you know, how do we get someone in West Virginia, you know, some Trump voter in middle America to care about Afghanistan, to yeah. care about the U.S. role in Syria. Is that the right question to be asking or is the period passed and this is just not even relevant? Well, you don't begin by talking about rules-based liberal order. <laughs> that is not, that is a typical... That's what gets me to the, to the ballot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is a typical sort of DC journalist think tank way of starting. And I just think you lose people from square one. You have to frame it in terms of concrete interests and challenges and threats. And, and if they don't buy it, they're not going to buy it. So, I mean, people are not infinitely persuadable. I think that, for example, in Syria, I mean, there might have been a moment under the Obama years, I think that that moment long since passed for a, a really robust American presence. Now we're just debating, you know, do we want a few hundred special ops, which, by the way, I think we should keep, yeah. or, you know, do we want to leave entirely, or do we, you know, could we maintain the full 2,000? I mean, that's the range of debate. So, you're not going to convince uh, people in, you know, whatever, West Virginia or Iowa that we should have 30,000 troops in Syria at this point. And I think that's part of what Trump played on was that recognition. Uh, Afghanistan um, has been an interesting case because uh, even though the frustrations built over the years, I think the people have been willing to defer to presidents in the end. So when president, you know, Trump ran on saying, hey, I'm fed up with Afghanistan. But then in 2017, he reversed himself and said, let's bolster our efforts. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see any massive demonstrations in the streets from his supporters saying, no, how dare you? So he was able to buy some time, which I think was the right decision. But now it's been over 17 years. So I think he is dialing back or doubling back to his original campaign province, which, promise, which is to say, you know, it, it is time to wind down. Yeah, this reminds me, I think you had, I think you were part of this event too, that kind of had a funny title around the midterms last year. I think it was just called, Who Really Cares? Yeah. About foreign policy. Right. Mm -hmm. do, do voters just not care a whole lot about foreign policy? And at the end of the day, presidents can stay in Afghanistan or do whatever they want and not, that, at the end of the day, people are going to vote on the economy and healthcare more than foreign policy, do you think? There is some truth to, th to that, which actually is interesting because it means that presidents have incredible leeway. Yeah. I mean, as long as they don't get into too much trouble with their core supporters, you know, if you think about moments where, where foreign policy really does start to matter, when, when after the invasion of Iraq, as you have Americans dying and fighting in Iraq in large numbers, then the voters' attention is riveted. And they, they're, they're voting either for or against the president based on their support for the war, frustration with the war. But, you know, short of, short of controversies like that, if it comes to a question of, you know, how exactly should we handle Egypt, yeah. presidents have the ability to do what they want and their, their supporters will not turn on them over these issues that really are not central to most voters' concerns. Okay, so one thing, I think this has also touched touched on the panel a bit, um, but, well, China, and kind of both between the Trump administration foreign policy, whether because of that or just happening alongside of it, there's been a realignment 
toward China and a focus that China is the threat, kind of disengaging elsewhere. Not may not disengaging, but focusing attention um, onto China from elsewhere. Do you see that as because of Trump at all? Or do you see that as just a natural way things are going? Like maybe Trump is positively shaking up the foreign policy establishment, saying we need to focus on our core interests, China, yep. um, versus kind of establishment people who say, no, but we still have to keep people. If we have to focus on Afghanistan, we have to focus on this and that and all over the world. That's right. Yeah, one of the toughest things in foreign policy, if you're a global power, is priorities. What's your priority? I mean, because it's hard. You know, on the one hand, we want to say we want to be everywhere, but you can't really be everywhere. So you have to prioritize. I think the shift toward China has been very long in coming. I mean, even Donald Rumsfeld and George W. Bush talked about it in 2000 before 9-11 and, and Iraq, you know, shifted their attention. They, they had reasons for that shift. But the idea of China as a strategic adversary was already, you know, rattling around 20 years ago. And then, of course, Obama tried to pivot to Asia, had, you know, limited success. I mean, it didn't maintain naval shipbuilding at the level that it should have been, for example, to make that real. So this idea has been kind of percolating. One of the things that Trump did that was very interesting was he not only emphasized China, but he emphasized the economic side of it. So the thing we were used to of hearing in D.C. was that we need to, you know, we need our alliances in Asia, we need a strong navy, we need to push back against the Chinese in these maritime disputes, all true. But it wasn't considered a, a top priority among policy elites in either party to emphasize China's foreign economic behavior. Trump realized, I think, that blue-collar Republicans cared more about that than about the other issues. So the idea that my local you know, factory has been shut down because of competition with China, right? We lost jobs, something like that. That was a real issue. And he, in that sense, Trump really mattered because he put it on the agenda and... Again, as messy as it's been, he's been willing to do something that I couldn't have pictured any other president doing, which is to actually use the threat of tariffs and you know, U.S. market access to try to push China on these issues, very fundamental issues. We'll see how it plays out. Um, there's lots of grounds for critique, but I actually give him credit for being willing to do something and pressure Beijing on the economic side, not just on the military side. I don't have their quote in front of me now, but Joe Biden said recently something about China basically being not a threat at all and does, does not seem to be on board with Trump's, you know, anti-China. China is a major adversary uh, tact. But Chuck Schumer seems totally on board with it and totally with Trump on treating China like the strategic adversary it probably is. Do you see or do you think there should be an emerging bipartisan consensus forming that China is the major long-term threat going forward? Or, is, or do the Democrats just not really... Like I, I don't, I don't know what to expect here because I, I would have thought Biden would be, kind of with Schumer on this, but he does, he doesn't seem to be. I think we'll find a year from now that that's a Biden gaffe that he has uh, backtracked. I think you're going to see if Biden's the nominee, you're going to hear him talking about Chinese competition, military and economic. I, I think that there's a striking convergence of Democrats and Republicans in Washington on this issue. For all the criticism of the administration and for all the differences on details. There, there is and there should be a growing consensus on this, which is, of course, we have to deal with terrorism and Russia and, you know, North Korea and you name it. But the number one long-term strategic challenge is China. And I actually think that that's where we're headed. There was, there was an interesting essay in the Financial Times, I think yesterday or the day before, and it talked about kind of the, prob the problem Democrats have in talking about Trump's China policy because they, you just, they don't want to come across as too soft. Well, it's like, it's like, what can they say? Exactly. It's just such a tough position. Okay. Um, so you also had another op-ed, I think a couple weeks ago now, um, about Nixon right. and Trump. 
Um, can you talk about, a bit about that? And what, what is the similarity between Nixon and Trump? Well, this is where I was struck by the similarities that Nixon wasn't much of a movement conservative either, right? But in a way, I w- over time, as you watch Trump, in some ways, they're very different. I mean, Nixon was a very methodical person. He sort of did his homework, right? Trump is very off the cuff. So they're different that way. However, if you look at their project and their politics, they're kind of similar. And this helps to understand that Trump is a kind of Republican that maybe Washington hasn't seen for a while. For example, it's more populist. There's a blue collar element. It isn't so strictly conservative ideologically. Uh, there's a real emphasis on on that um, kind of idea that you combine workers, you know, blue collar workers into a Republican coalition. And that affects your that affects your policies too. You know, Trump's position on Social Security is essentially hands off. I mean, I don't like that. I would, I would rather see personal accounts, right? I mean, I'm sitting here in AI. I think that our economists have it right, but that's not his position, and he has made it very clear. On foreign policy, it's more realpolitik, great power politics, sort of strategic retrenchment. Like, let's let's define our interests fairly narrowly, without completely dismantling our military role in the world. That's a little Nixonian, and and similarly with Vietnam. You know, Nixon fought a kind of fighting retreat. I like to compare Nixon to one of those cowboys in the old westerns where they back through the doors shooting. Yeah. That was Nixon of Vietnam. He didn't, he didn't want to lose. He actually wanted to save South Vietnam, but he knew he was outnumbered. Yeah. And so it was a fighting retreat. And I think... Um, peace with honor, right? Peace with honor, honor. exactly. Um, so we'll see how it ends in Afghanistan. That's a, that's a striking similarity. Um, and then the re-election will... We'll, I think... Um, you know, I'm not saying Trump's going to win 49 states the way Nixon did in 1972. However, Democrats have the ability to shoot themselves in the foot by going too far left, which is exactly what they did with McGovern. So we'll see. Yeah. And the headline wasn't – it was kind of a misleading – not misleading, but funny headline because you wrote this right after the Mueller report came out. So right. Everybody assumed like <laughs> Nixon, Watergate, but it's totally different. It's yeah. about foreign policy. That's right. I Do you think Trump is a necessary correction then where it seemed like – just being like a casual political observer for the last 10 years or so, the GOP foreign policy was seemed maximalist on every issue. Yeah. Russia, major enemy. China, major enemy. North Korea, huge enemy. The Middle East, or at least Iran, big enemy. Global Jihad, huge enemy. Libya, got to get involved. Syria, got to get involved. Venezuela, bad. And like, <laughs> it just seems like common sense would say you're kind of overstretched here. So Nixon obviously had his going to China moment. Is, is Trump going to also have a realignment where maybe... Like, should the U.S. kind of realign itself and either not partner, but at least come to another detente with maybe Russia as the country that's been an enemy in the past, but maybe shouldn't be anymore? So I, I'm willing to believe that Trump honestly thinks we should we should reach better relations with Russia. I mean, he's been very open about it, so it's it's not like it's some secret. He ran on it. Uh, the problem with that is it might sound appealing as kind of a reverse Nixon Kissinger. You know, you yeah. balance Russia against China instead of the reverse. Yeah. The problem is I don't see much evidence that Putin's Russia is interested in playing that role on behalf of the U.S. against China. In other words, Russia right now actually gets a fair amount out of being hostile toward the U.S. and sort of partners with China. Uh, there, It is not insane to want, you know, business like peaceful relations with Russia, but I do think we have to kind of keep an eye on them in multiple ways, which actually we are. I mean, the administration's policy on the ground in Europe, in Ukraine and Poland and so on, is pretty hard line, which I, which I support. But um, what was the first part of your question before the Russia bit? Just what is the Republican policy oh, just too maximalist on, on everything? Yeah. You know, he, so Trump ran on this 
this platform that was hard to know what he wanted, right? There wasn't a lot of specificity to it. It was quite general. It was very critical. It was very harsh. You know, NATO's obsolete. Japan should go nuclear. People had different risk tolerance for whether they were willing to give it a try. Voters were willing to give it a try. A lot of us who were experts said, like, this is, this is a bit much. I think I'll bow out, right? Yeah. Um, now, so that's fair enough. I mean, everybody made their own call. When you actually look at the administration's policies, when he had to fill in the blanks, what you have in the end is U.S. alliances are still there. U.S. troops are still overseas, right? However, what he has said is, let's, let's try to correct or tone down some of the most uh, ambitious, idealistic uh, concepts that we've been operating under the last 25 years. That, that, is not so, that is not so crazy. And actually, in that sense, I think it maybe in the end, if we're lucky, it is a kind of a correction. Well, unfortunately, with that, we're just about out of time. But Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And all the best. Great to see you. (laughs) Well, we hope you all enjoyed the conversation. If you did, please, please subscribe and leave a review on either iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. No one left us a review over the last week. Therefore, we are left to do our own punditry (laughs) instead of reading off someone else's hot takes. Uh, Which leads me to this. Matt, who is going to emerge as the Democratic candidate? In the next election, I was never. I never thought it would be Biden, but after the past week or so, it seems like it probably will be. You never thought it would be. I didn't think. I thought he was going to be the Jeb Bush. Like you know, he's got the name recognition. So did Jeb Bush. He's going to have the money. So did Jeb Bush. I thought as soon as he declared, people would see like you know, kind of a paper tiger. But he got a massive bump, and Bernie, I don't think, has caught up. And then even that booty dead guy seems to be fading a little bit. Booty edge, boot edge, edge, and. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like it'll be Biden. And I was actually, I was going to be, you know, a little relieved, I guess, that it wasn't going to be, you know, a McGovern type like Colin mentioned until we brought up today Biden's point about China and how he seems totally incapable of seeing China as a threat. Yeah, he said a few, he said a few things lately too, but not just that, but just a handful, a handful of things where if he's kind of trying to run as like the centrist person to bring people back from Trump, he's definitely said a few things that uh, will turn off those moderate voters. I think that China thing is one of them. But I could be completely wrong. No one cares about foreign policy, except you 5,000 listeners. <laughs> <laughs> a few people do. Well, for a while, I thought Tulsi Gabbard could be a dark horse, too, because she— Oh, I didn't ever thought so. Oh, like, you never know. Like, I thought she might catch the kind of—boot boot edge edge, however you say his name, got the, uh, got the kind of random nobody bump. But people were saying Tulsi, she's got that, you know, heterodox foreign policy where she's she was trying to be the Rand Paul of the Democratic Party. But I just don't know if the Democratic— primary base cares enough about foreign policy to really to really look at her at least like there i feel like there's at least a libertarian part of the republican base that was into Rand paul i don't know if there's a similar one for tulsi well how about we do this we can start doing this weekly now pick five people who you think are potential nominees and next time we'll re- that's a lot of people okay right. uh three pick three. three people you're confident will be around for a while okay when do the debate when do the debate start i want to say july all right Okay, well, looking forward to that. I know. All right, well, I, I'll, I got my top three right here. It'll yep. be Bernie, Biden, and maybe I only have two. I don't see anyone else. Like, uh, Elizabeth Warren's got all the policies, but she can't break through. I think Buttigieg and Beto both are just going to have that kind of Ben Carson phase where they're, like, popular for some reason for a little bit, and then they just fade pretty quickly. And I guess Kamala, Kamala Harris? Hmm. She's my third. Really? Yeah. I've got Bernie Biden, Elizabeth Warren. 
Buttigieg Buttigieg is is the one that <laughs> is the one that I would put on there as a fourth. I think. Shockingly, and although I don't know, you know, this is this is a very think tank lunch conversation. I know we're really stepping on the toes too of you know our, our actual political analysts here at AEI. So. Don't worry, you're not stuck with us. We'll have Carlin Bowman or Sean Trendy or some of the act, the people that are norms, people that actually know stuff. We should interview at some point to talk about the uh, the coming primary. But I'm excited; should be fun. I don't know how they're going to handle the fun. debate. Yeah, well, we'll have our own debates on here week <laughs> after week if you keep listening. So. If you care to listen to us <laughs> at this far, uh, at least it's not UVA basketball. <laughs> anyway, next week we have Michael Strain coming on. He's the head of AEI's economics department, and we're going to talk about the ongoing conservative civil war about family policy and economic policy. Should be good. And we'll see you then. This will not stand. This will not stand this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Well, I do mind. Uh, The dude minds. This will not stand. You know, this aggression will not stand, man.